Well, as you know, we're finishing up John 17 this morning, which means next week we enter into the final section of John's gospel, the Passion Week. And that is going to naturally take us all the way up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, which, if you can believe it, is only five weeks away now. So we're on schedule, which is exciting. But before we get there, we have a huge subject to tackle this morning, a huge subject. God's stated desire that his people be united together as one. God's stated desire that his people be united together as one. And of all the passages in the New Testament that teach us that truth, and there are many, the one we're going to look at this morning is the one that's most often cited to build up this important truth. Now, this is a topic, unity, that shouldn't be controversial, but it is. If Christians are good at anything, it's the fact that we can take something so clearly stated and so easy to understand and complicate it. It's what we do. And as most of you know, the history of the church shows us that we have not done unity very well at all. The divisions within what we call Christendom are historical and deep and often very bitter. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant. And then within those three macro categories, you have this vast catalog of breakoffs and splits, denominations and then subdenominations under that. And the deeper you dive into church history, guess what you find? More schism and more division. So it's tempting to fall into despair over this issue. I've felt that before. To be so depressed by the fact that we cannot seem as a people to figure this out. But then you realize it's been this way since the very beginning. And you only have to look at Paul's letters to see that it's always been true. To the church in Corinth, Paul rebuked them for what? Their quarrels and their divisions. To the Galatian churches, he warned against strife, jealousy, disputes, dissensions, and factions. To the Ephesians, he exhorted them to put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, and slander. And then in Philippi, apparently there was two prominent women in that church who Paul had to, they were apparently at odds with one another, and so Paul had to write to them, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree or to live in harmony in the Lord, he wrote. So this is not a new problem, and it shouldn't surprise us. As long as Christ followers have been gathering to worship, there has been disunity. But it begs the question, why? And we don't have enough hours this morning to walk through all the reasons why there's so much disunity. The bottom line is because of sin. It's because so often our fleshly desires control us. It's because of things like pride and jealousy and narcissism and immaturity. There's almost an endless list of reasons why we cannot come together as one. And I have to be honest, if I dwell on it too long, it just takes me to a place of discouragement because I've seen this in my life. I've seen it in the life of Oak Hill. I've experienced betrayal and disunity and heartbreak over, over people that have broken apart, broken fellowship from one another. I know many of you also, as we sit down and do member interviews, we hear the stories of things you have gone through where you've seen conflict in the church and you've seen church splits take place. But here's what I do. When I get discouraged over this, here's what I do. Number one, I remember what Scripture says about God's sovereignty over His church, because it's His church. He's the Lord over it. I remember that sanctifying gifts often come in painful packages. That's the truth. I remember that ultimately God's purposes cannot and will not be thwarted even by fleshly people. And I remember that nowhere in the Bible does God promise that pursuing unity is going to be easy even as we know that sanctification isn't easy and the battle against the flesh isn't easy. So it is with unity. So let's take a look at this controversial but important topic. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to John 17. We are wrapping up today, and as we do that, uh, in just a second, I'm going to put a simple outline on the screen. So not only are we reading it together, but you can see what just a basic outline looks like uh, for this great prayer that we have. So let's see. Here we go. Uh, in the first five verses, we recall that Jesus prayed with himself in mind. He prayed with himself in mind, focusing on his relationship with the Father and highlighting the eternal glory 
that he possessed along with his father in eternity past. So early on in chapter 17, we saw the pre-existence of the son. And he talked about his longing to return to the father, to, to bask in that glory once again, the glory that he once had with him before the world was made. And so we got to like pull back the curtain just a little bit and get a, a glimpse into the intra-Trinitarian relationship between these two divine persons. Then from verses 66 to 19, Jesus shifted away from himself and then turned his attention to interceding for his 11 disciples, those 11 men who were with him on that night. And knowing that he was about to be taken away, he passionately asked the Father to keep them, to protect them from the enemy, and then to sanctify them in the truth so that as they're sent out into the world, they possess what they need most, and that is the truth of God's word. And now in our text for this morning, beginning in verse 20, we're going to see the circle that Jesus prays for begin to widen. It's as if the sovereign eye of the Lord begins to scan the centuries forward all the way to the entire end of redemptive history. And he begins to pray for his entire bride, the church from every age, including us. This is that part of the prayer where he includes us, all who are going to hear the message of the gospel down through the centuries. Now, as we work our way through this, there's two things I want you to see, sort of the grand themes that I want you to see, so don't, don't miss this. Number one, in the midst of all this intercessory prayer, don't miss the grand theme that covers all of this, and that is the divine honor and love and oneness that exists between God the Father and God the Son. It's woven throughout this prayer. And number two, make sure you see how Jesus prays, not with anxiety about the future, not with fear, not with a lack of confidence because he, he doesn't know what the results are going to be, but he prays with absolute certainty that he is heard by the Father and that the Father will bring all of it to pass. Those two things are critically important. Make sense? Okay, let's back up to verse 15 and we'll read down through the rest of the chapter just so we get context and flow. Look at John 17, verse 15. Jesus prays, I do not ask you, Father, to take them, the disciples, out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they, they, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now we look at today's passage. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is the 11 men who are with him, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Man, it hit me this week as I was doing this. This is about four sermons. <laughs> there is so much in here that we could just take and just go off on these really important sort of rabbit trails on on micro subjects within the grander themes. But we're going we're gonna to pull all this together in one message this morning. I want you to notice again, this is not some general prayer for all of humankind. Remember up in verse 9, Jesus clearly said, I do not ask on behalf of the world. The focus here is on those who belong to the Son, the ones whom the Father has given to him to save. So that's every person, present and future, whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And already at this point in human history, God has set his affection upon them. Oh, his affection upon us. Even though we haven't even been born yet, his affection, his eye is upon us. And with full knowledge that he's about to lay down his life for us to pay the penalty for our sins, he prays for us. Is that not incredible? 
It's incredible that he stops and he prays for people who won't be born for centuries still, right? He has you in his heart. He has me in his heart. And he carries us to the throne of the Father, recognizing that each one of us are his personal possessions. Each one of us is a love gift from the Father to the Son. We're to be kept, we're to be sanctified during this lifetime. And someday we're gonna be raised to glory with him. That's the picture we get here as this circle of prayer widens beyond the 11 to even you and I today. And how will these future Christians come to believe in Jesus? If they can't see him like the disciples did, if they can't walk the roads of Galilee with him as the disciples did, how are we gonna be saved? Well, there in verse 20, Jesus says that in the future, they, these Christians, you and I will believe through what? Through their word, meaning the testimony of these disciples, right? Now, this is an amazing thing because at that moment, there's only 11 of them. <laughs> Imagine, we talk about doing big ministry. The known world, I got 11 dudes. But we're going to turn the world up. We're going to change the world with these guys. It's really amazing. Now, they're disciples now, and, and that word disciple just means student or learner, but they're soon to be known as apostles. What's an apostle? That word just means one who is sent out from disciple to apostle. And what an audacious prayer request this is. Father, take these 11 immature believers, these baby believers, men, by the way, who are about to run for their lives, scattered all over the place out of fear, and through them, Father, draw generations of believers to yourself through their testimony. If you didn't understand the sovereignty of God, you would look at this and go, that's a terrible plan. <laughs> that, that plan is not going to work. Look at these guys, right? Right? But as we talked about several weeks ago, Jesus, is, is, Jesus isn't praying about this as if the end result is up for grabs, right? He's praying for things that are certain to come to pass because he knows what God's will is and he knows that God is sovereign, that God always does according to his will. God does as he pleases. Jesus knows this. So his word delivered through these men will go out. And as the Lord said through Isaiah, my word will go forth from my mouth and it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. God is sovereignly gonna send them out. And all those marked out for salvation will hear the word of the gospel and they will be saved. Of all this, Jesus is supremely confident of this truth as he prays. And imagine for just a second, if you're one of those disciples and you're hearing the son of God Pray this to his father. How comforting would that have been to know that it's not just us, not look at, they're looking at each other. It's not just us, but the very father and son are involved in this. So every time they went through hardship, every time they had to endure suffering, they could fall back on this prayer and know that God was sovereignly with them. What a source of comfort, right? We sometimes forget that, right? These guys would have looked back on this prayer, I guarantee it, many, many times in the future. And so as Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. First through the preaching of the apostles and then later, for later generations, through the God-breathed scriptures that the spirit will produce through these men. That's the chain of command. One faith delivered to the saints, one testimony about the nature and person of Christ given to the apostles, one set of doctrines passed along in the written word. That's what we contend for. Fast forward to 2,000 years later and this morning, that process of passing along this truth is unfolding even this morning. It's still going on. We preach and teach not what is new, not what is original, not what comes out of my head or the head of the elders. We preach the apostolic word handed down. That's the way it's designed. From the triune God to the apostles to us, this is the faith we contend for here at Oak Hill. That, that's the way it should be at any church you ever belong to that you see that that's what's being preached. Not some creative, cool spe you know, speech from the guy up, up front flapping his gums, but the apostolic word, amen? Okay, so with that laid out, let's dive into this controversial subject of unity. Go back to verse 20 and 21. Let's see what Jesus says here. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And what does he want? Verse 21, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. That they may be in us. Now, I don't know about you, but this is, amazes me. 
on the night of his betrayal, as he's facing arrest and trial and a painful execution, and there must have been a hundred things running through his mind. What's his focus in these last few lines? That we would be one. Right? I mean, how many things, if, if put yourself in his sandals, I know it's hard, he's the son of God, right? How many things would have been on your heart in that moment? What's on his heart is that we would be united as one. Consider that. That's no small thing. And then consider, is this something you've taken seriously in your walk with Christ? To strive for unity in the body. So what exactly is he praying for? When he says that they all be one, what does he mean? A couple things it's not. First of all, this is not about uniformity. This is very important. Nowhere in scripture are all believers across the world or even in the same local church called to be carbon copies of one another. How boring would that be? There's no instruction for us to look alike or dress alike. We don't have to enjoy the same kinds of hobbies or activities. We don't have to have the same opinions about everything. Nowhere does it say that we have to have the same political views. We don't have to listen to the same type of music or go to the same types of movies. I've even heard, and I'm not sure this is true, that somebody who roots for USC can be saved. <laughs> even a San Francisco Giants fan. You know who you are. Jeff Steele's not even here this morning. The fact that Jeff Steele and I can love each other in the midst of football season is a supernatural, supernatural work of the Lord. Wow. Do not defile this room. I don't think I've done a USC joke in, in, it's been a while, so I get one like once a year or something. But this is actually one of the beauties of being a member of Christ's body. The church functions with a great diversity of skills and gifts and passions and likes and dislikes, one body with many different types of members. In fact, the diversity in our midst is designed to be glorious. It's designed to be a testimony and a witness to the world. And when you look at the church across the world, there's all these fantastic splashes of human color and variety, and each one enriches the body of Christ as a whole. So we should celebrate that. So it's not uniformity. That's important. This one's even bigger. It's not organizational either. Jesus is not praying for an organizational unity in this particular passage. He's not praying for a one-world church. He's not praying for uh, an organization under a single leader or one governing structure. We've seen various religious groups try to establish that type of structure, and it hasn't worked out well, has it? Roman Catholicism, for one. The LDS Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, to name just three. All of those have claimed a single authority structure, and they've laid out very strict punishments for any dissenters. But even that hasn't prevented sinful human beings from being sinful. They've not been able to shut down even splinter groups. All three of those religious organizations have splinter groups that are constantly challenging the mothership. And just to be fair, over the first couple hundreds of years of the early church, Christians tried to do this too. They tried to set up this very hierarchical, gosh, that's a hard word, that word, structure based on regional bishops. And, and they set that up thinking that they could somehow control bad ideas from getting out and control sinful people from doing what sinful people do. Guess what? It failed. It failed. So, Here's the thing you need to know. On this night, Jesus isn't praying about an organized, visible church. The clue to what he was praying for is actually found right there in the verse. In verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So catch that. He's praying that believers will have the same type of oneness and unity that exists between himself and the Father. That's what he's praying for. See it? And that eliminates... All the mundane things that we think about. When we think about disunity, we think about all these external things, right? But that's really not what Jesus is focused on here. This is, this is much bigger than squabbles over, well, how often should we do communion? Or, or which translation of the Bible is the best? This is internal. This is internal, not external, right? Let me click this. He says it again in verse 23. Same thing. I in them and you in me 
that they, meaning all Christians, may be perfected in unity. So what Jesus is praying for is theologically known as the invisible church. How many of you guys have heard that term before? Anybody? The invisible church, as opposed to the visible church. The visible church is external. It's an expression of Christianity that people can see with their physical eyes. It's the gathering and the practices of, uh, you know how when somebody says, I belong to this or that church? That's the visible church. The visible church meets in buildings. It has pastors and ordinances and small groups and event calendars and all that stuff. But it also has wheat and it has tares. It has wheat and tares, meaning some of the visible church are believers, but many others are not. Many others are not. And, and I think we're gonna, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised how many people were in a visible church who didn't actually know, trust, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many are not. The invisible church, on the other hand, is the true church, known only to the Lord himself because it's a body of believers that has no tares in its midst. It cannot be discerned by human beings because it's comprised of only genuine born-again Christians. Only God knows because God is the one who has chosen them, drawn them, justified them, saved them, and sealed them. He's the only one that can know for sure. Jesus actually mentions this briefly in Luke 17. Let me give you this amazing passage. It says, Having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's invisible. So the unity of this true church that Jesus is praying for is not organizational, it's not visible, it's inward, it's spiritual, it's a shared life that involves all those relationships that Jesus talks about in this prayer. Look at it again. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and therefore those two persons are one, And all true believers are in Christ, and because we're in the Son, we're also in the Father. And now here's the big one, drum roll, that means we're all in one another. Right? We're members of one another, the Scripture says. And that is such a deep concept, isn't it? And we don't seem to understand that very well in the flesh, but we are members of one another. This is huge. This is huge news, what he prays for here. As adopted children, we share somehow in the communicable aspects of life in God. Peter will describe this as as partaking in the divine nature. And you're like, how is that possible? Well, Jesus actually told us about it back in chapter 15. He said, we abide in Christ. We dwell with him as in a vine where branches connected to his life partakers of this divine nature, the communicable aspect of that. And it's only possible because we've been radically changed. If you're a believer here this morning, as a human being, you have been radically changed. You've been reborn. Now the Spirit of God's taken up residence within you. You are a new creation in Christ. We say that all the time, but do we really know what that means? We're a new creation. His victory over sin and death is your victory. So the members of this invisible church, the true believers, are drawn into the very life of the triune Godhead. We're drawn into all the things that Paul exhorts us to in Philippians 2, having one mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. That's what he's praying for here. And this is important. At first glance, you might look at this prayer request that Jesus lifts up to the Father and say, well, that part of the prayer really failed. Jesus prayed that we'd all be one, and look at how divided and messed up we are. So I guess the Father didn't pay attention to that request. But nothing could be further from the truth. The true church, made up of true believers, is one in Christ. God has seen to it. Now, you object, and you probably should at this point, but I don't see that, (laughs) right? Like, I go through life, and I'm like, but hold on a second. I don't really see that. Well, this is part of the already not yet paradigm that we exist in today. Positionally, we're one in Christ right now. Do you understand the difference between positional and practical? Positionally, the church is one in Christ right now. But the true church now has an obligation to strive with all diligence to make our unity not just positional, 
but practical. To become what we are positionally, united as one. Because this passage makes it abundantly clear, Jesus talks about it, unity in in, in Christ is meant to be observable by the world. That's the design. Practically, it should be observable. So that is our calling and our responsibility in the years that God gives us on this earth to make that unity observable so this dark world out there sees it and says, there's something going on there. So again, get this, positionally versus practical. Make sure I keep up. Look at verse 23 again. That they may be perfected in unity. When you see that word perfected, what does that imply? That there's work to be done on this, right? It's not, again, positionally it's done, but practically we need to keep working on it. We need to perfect this, right? That's where we're aiming as the true church. It's a process of perfecting over time what is positionally true right now. Does that make sense? Ephesians 4.3 says something very similar. That's why we are in Ephesians 4 in our call to worship. Paul writes that we're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Get this now. That means that that, that, that unity of the Spirit is a positional fact right now. It's our job to preserve that. To preserve that unity, perfect that unity in the years that we're given on this earth. So we have to strive for this. We have to strive for how long, well, Paul goes on to say, until when? Until we attain to the unity of the faith. That's how long. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. So we don't see the fullness of this unity yet. We grow into it together as we come to know the Son more, as we mature in the faith. And listen, I got to tell you this. It's every person's responsibility in this room who is a member of the invisible church, the true church, to take on this calling and responsibility to make this positional unity practical and put it out there and make it observable for the world to see. Does that make sense? Now, before I go any further, because I want to talk more about how we do that, it's important to know also that there are times when we don't unite with people who profess to be Christians. There are times and reasons to break fellowship, to say, I cannot unite with this person. They claim to know Jesus, but I cannot be united with them. We should know that. And the first reason for that is blatant, unrepentant sin, right? Or promoting, right? Pushing, promoting a sinful lifestyle. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5, right? The Corinthian church was putting up with sexual sin in the body. They were doing nothing about it. And Paul's furious, right? He makes it clear. How can you, how can you be united to somebody who's promoting that open sexual sin, that open sinful lifestyle? He says, toss that person out because a little leaven gets through the whole lump of dough. So we cannot unite with any promotion of, a, of an ungodly lifestyle that is clearly not allowed in scripture. That's number one. Number two has to do with essential doctrines of the faith. Essential doctrines and beliefs that define what historical Christianity is. Primarily about the nature of God and about salvation. So we cannot have fellowship with or be united to individuals or churches that cannot or will not affirm essential doctrine. Things like this. And it starts with the first one, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Without that, we're all just a bunch of opinions, aren't we? It starts there, but goes on. The Trinitarian nature of God. The corruption and guilt of all mankind because of the fall. The virgin birth. The full deity and humanity of Christ. His substitutionary death on the cross. His bodily resurrection. Salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from works, and so on. These are essential doctrines of the faith. If you don't believe in those things, there is no, in no sense are you a historic Christian. And Paul provides us with a good example, just like he did in 1 Corinthians 5. He gives us a great example in Galatians of what to do when someone denies essential doctrine. You remember the story of the Judaizers who got into the Galatian churches and started talking about, well, faith in Jesus is good, but you need circumcision and you need to observe the law. And what did Paul do? Did he say, you know what? Let's set that stuff aside and just be united for the sake of our witness. 
No. What did he say? He said, anyone who teaches that false gospel is to be accursed. So he drew the line. He drew the line hard. Now, what about non-essential truths? What about those things that are important, but they're not directly connected to the nature of God or salvation? So I'm talking about things like what we call church polity, right? How, how your church is structured, how to best practice the ordinances, details about eschatology, the question of sign gifts in the church today, things of that nature. In those cases, what do we do? We extend grace to one another. We extend grace. And as I say that, don't get me wrong, those are really important things. And here at Oak Hill, we have strong convictions about them and we teach them consistently, but they are not worth dividing over. They are not worth destroying our witness in this world. So we've got to have discernment here. As long as the essentials are affirmed, we don't have to agree on every secondary issue in order to have this observable unity in the world. And when it comes to how to do this well, how to hold our convictions over preferences without judging others, Scripture tells us how to do this. Did you know Paul wrote a whole chapter in the book of Romans on how to do this? And yet it appears it's the, most, it's the least read chapter in the entire Bible. I mean, we have a guide on what to do. Here's what I believe. Here's what you believe. Okay, preferences, non-essentials. Okay, I have a strong conviction. Good, hold to it, but don't judge your brother, right? Weaker, stronger. We have this whole chapter in Romans. Read it, practice it, live it out. It's so important. So at the end of the day, it's important that we're able to rightly discern what's at stake whenever we come to a disagreement with our brother or sister. What is at stake here? So that we have the proper balance, always striving to love, to agree, to accept, but at the same time, never compromising when it comes to sin and essential doctrine. Make sense? And by the way, if you ever need a counsel on this, you're like, I've got a friend who's saying this or that, and I'm not sure, is this essential or not? Just holler to an elder. We'd love to help you with that. Because those, that, that discernment is so critical to our witness, isn't it? Okay, so what's required then for us to mature into this perfection of unity? Okay, how do we do this? How do we grow in this? The first thing I have to say is that you cannot staple unity onto your spiritual fruit tree. You cannot wake up and go, all right, I'm just going to be unified. It's not going to happen. Understanding this internal unity that we're to seek in the true church has to come as an authentic work of the Spirit. Your heart needs to be changed on this. And of course, that means that first, you've got to be a true born-again believer that has the Spirit within. But when the Spirit gives you a conviction about unity, and it's my prayer this morning that if you've not been convicted about this issue, that this is the morning where you go, you know what, this is important. But when the Spirit gives you a conviction about unity, and then He begins to change your heart and give you new affections, right? So that you, you, wanted, you desire to live out oneness in the body of Christ. When you begin to feel the weight of that conviction, and then you submit to it as God's truth, you know, he or she, that Christian, is going to, over time, by the work of the Spirit, begin to produce a greater sense of love and grace for your, your fellow family members. That's going to happen. That, that's how the Spirit works, right? We see it in the Word, and we go, wow, that looks important. I need to develop a conviction about this. And then we say to the Spirit, Lord, change my heart so that I live this out better. And what does the Spirit do? He always comes and attends to things that are within God's will. And he says, I'm going to give you a new affection for your brothers and sisters. I'm going to help you grow in this, this desire for unity. If you haven't prayed for that, you should, because this is important. You can test yourself in this. Look back over the last few years. Have I grown in my love for other believers? Have I grown in my ability to extend grace, even in the midst of conflict, to my fellow believers? We should all be testing ourselves in that. Are we growing more gracious and more loving, or are we going the other way? Because this world will cause you to get hardened and angry, won't it? If you let it. But are we going in the right direction towards grace and love? This is a spiritual fruit thing. There's no substitute for this. Because in our natural selves, we are never going to do unity well. Because we're selfish. We do selfishness really well as human beings. It's, it comes natural to us, right? So this has to be a work of the Spirit. To move from selfishness to otherness. To be diligent about preserving unity requires, first and foremost, the H word, humility. 
humility. And again, none of us wakes up in our natural selves and says, I'm going to be more humble because we're bent towards ourselves, right? We need the spirit to help us with this. This requires living sacrificially. It requires putting the needs of others before our own. Sometimes it requires overlooking offense when we're hurt. It requires bearing with one another and then going a step further, fervently loving one another from the heart. Bottom line, it requires taking up a cross and dying to self. It takes having the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, right? Philippians 2. When he submitted himself to the Father's will, he laid aside his glory, he took on the form of a servant, and he went to the cross. There's no shortcut to this. If we really want to be unified, these are the things that are required. Striving for unity is both God's will and our duty as Christ followers. It is a high calling, and it's a hard calling. I'm not up here saying this is easy. And we have a whole 2,000 years of history to say we haven't done it well. But let each one of us take it upon ourselves to diligently strive in this area. Spurgeon, you know how I love some Spurgeon, has some amazing examples in his life of this. Because if you don't know, Spurgeon was quite controversial in his day. Not everybody loves Charles Spurgeon, right? And he didn't love everybody. He had to strive for this. In spite of his own feelings, he had to strive for it because he knew what the Bible said. So let me give you a great quote from him. He says this, I hate high churchism. And if you need to know about that, historically, ask me after the service. He ha I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan. But I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. He says, I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul, and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. He goes on, he says, let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as George Herbert did, and I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There's no room for question, for I cannot help myself. I cannot cease loving those who love Christ. Man. Virgin had a major break with the high churchmen of his day, but he loved this man because this man loved Jesus. He was able to set aside those secondary issues about you know, church polity and stuff and love each other. So what a great lesson for us. We've got to discern this well. Now, real quickly, let's deal with this issue, this issue of witness in the world. As I said earlier, God's call for unity among his people is designed to be observable. And it's designed to be a tool in God's hand that witnesses to the truth about who Jesus is and about the mission that he came for, right? He says it twice in our passage, in the prayer. Jesus says this twice. Our oneness points to this critical truth. Are you ready? That Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. Of all the things, our unity shows that, that the Father sent his one and only Son into the world, the preexistent divine word, took on flesh, he exegeted the Father for the world to see. And then he died as a substitute for sinners. That's what our unity can point to. And now by our godly lives and by our verbal witness and our visible unity, we proclaim those same truths to a lost world. But we, can't, we cannot have conflict and, and rancor and dissension and squabbles and barking at each other and then go, oh, but look at Jesus. The world isn't buying that. The world won't buy that. The oneness that we have, which transcends everything else, is designed to get the world's attention, to have them see us and say, huh, there's something going on there. It shows that Jesus is the Savior. It shows that he can transform hearts. Because in this selfish world we live in, people see us when we're other-centered, and they go, how do you do that? And the answer is, Jesus has transformed my heart. Francis Schaeffer. Now, I don't know how you feel about Francis Schaeffer. I love his writings. I think he's very insightful. I know some people are like, eh. But he's written on this subject extremely well. Let me share, I'm going to share two quotes from, from him. He says, first of all, he says, It's in the midst of difference that we have our golden opportunity, Christians. When everything is going well, and we're all standing around in a nice little circle. There's not much to be seen by the world. But 
When we come to the place where there is a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principle, but at the same time observable love, then there is something the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. That's a great quote. Right? When we bump into differences, that's when we get this opportunity to say, yeah, we're bigger than that disagreement because of Jesus. When people in the world see us, when they see an uncommon love that, and listen, in the world today, is everybody's at each other's throats, right? Online and otherwise. This world cannot figure out interpersonal relationships in any way. When they see our uncommon love, that's the opportunity. But we got to practice it. And there's a flip side to this as well, a very sad one. When we blow this, when we fail at loving, when we fail to extend grace to one another, when we visibly fight with one another and we split, the world has every right to look at us and say, that Christianity thing's a crock. I don't believe it for a second. I don't believe it for a second. James tells us why. I mean, again, the Bible's so practical. James 4, 1 is so practical. What does James say? He says, what's the source of wars and fights among you? Rhetorical question. It says, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you don't have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. Spurgeon was more blunt. You know what he said? He said, why are we not one? Sin is the great dividing element. Sin. The perfectly holy would be perfectly united. Isn't that true? It's sin. The fact is there's too many Christians out there today who are itching for a fight. They're itching for a fight, for a conflict. You see it online more than ever, and it's so damaging to the gospel. Big name. I mean, people, you go, that's a big Christian name. Online, arguing with each other on a public forum, showing lost people that we can't get along. Right? Self-proclaimed watchdogs who run around pointing fingers at everybody because we have different opinions about things on public forums. And what they're doing is they're feeding their pride. They're building their brands as they beat their chest about how conservative they are or how this they are or whatever. And they tear down other churches and they tear down other church leaders and they do it in public. Guys, your online presence is a bigger thing than you might imagine. Pay close attention to your online presence. What do you say in public forums for the world to look at? There's so many biblical warnings about this, about creating division and factions in the body. And again, there's some of the most disobeyed passages in the entire New Testament. I don't know why, but they are. Well, I do know why. The flesh, sin, pride, all that stuff. I'll just give you, I was going to do this again. I'll just give you a few of them. Romans 16. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Right? Contrary to the teaching which you learned, and do what? Turn away from them. They're poison. They're poison. They're dividing the body. Titus is maybe the strongest on this. Titus 3, 10, and 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted, he's sinning, he is self-condemned. You cannot be a divider of Christ's body and act like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. No, he's self-condemned. Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. You know what the seventh one is? One who sows discord among brothers. That's a strong word. God hates this. Strong word. He hates it. It's an abomination when we destroy the unity of his people, when we betray brothers and sisters. And I'll go a step further. When we grumble against one another, when we hold grudges, when we argue against leadership, when we whisper gossip about other church members in the shadows, it's destructive to fellowship. It breaks down love and trust. And it gives the enemy a foothold within the body of Christ to draw people into sin. It's dangerous stuff. This is why the very first point in our church covenant and you guys know it, right? It's number one for this reason, because it's the, if we could do this one, we're way ahead of the game, right? We will work and pray for unity of the spirit within the body, always practicing forgiveness, pursuing reconciliation, and rejecting harmful gossip.
It's number one. Because this is how the church gets wrecked when we don't pay attention to these obvious warnings. I'm going to go back to Francis Schaeffer. You're going to have to listen because I don't have it on the screen, but listen to what he says. He goes, We should never come to differences with true Christians without regret and without tears. We rush in, being very, very pleased, it would seem at times, to find other men's mistakes. We build ourselves up by tearing other men down. When we must differ with each other as true Christians, we do it not because we love the smell of blood or the smell of the arena, but because we must for God's sake. If there are tears when we must speak, then something beautiful can be observed. It's a great quote. So friends, remember this. Whether you're a member at Oak Hill or you become a member somewhere else or maybe 20 years, you you find another church, you become a member there, will you please remember this? It's not your church. It belongs to Jesus. He's the Lord of his church. And the last thing you want on your resume, on the day that you see him face to face and sit at the beam of seat judgment, the last thing you want on your resume is, I did damage to his bride. I did damage to his bride. Okay, we're going to end on a high note now. <laughs> Look at verses 23 and 24. I know that's hard, right? Positionally true, but we got to work on this practically. I want to look in the last few moments that we have at how Jesus ends this prayer. Right? The last things that the last words of the Lord are important. What is the last thing that he prays for? Verse 23 says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. So I don't know if you caught this the first time through, but here in verse 23, Jesus says the Father loves us even as he loves his own son. That is staggering. Because we understand how much the father loves the son, but here he says, and loves us even as he's loved his own son. The love of the father for you is immeasurable. What a comfort this is. And then he goes on to verse 24 with the second great and amazing thing. He says, Father, I desire that they also, that's all believers, whom you had given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. I desire this, Jesus says. The the verb here is thelo, and it means I'd be delighted by this. It means it would give me great pleasure if this takes place. What? Get this now. To have my chosen ones with me in heaven for all eternity. That God the Son says, this would be, give me the greatest pleasure to have you with him for all eternity. We read right past this stuff and we don't stop to think how mind-blowing that is. He's like, I long for the consummation of the ages. I long to gather every saint from every age into my Father's kingdom so that they can see my glory up close and personal. That's what he says, right? So that they can come, I will gather them to myself in my Father's kingdom and they will be able to gaze upon my glory. All that I am in my Father's kingdom. Guys, the best part of heaven is going to be that we just get to be with Jesus and see his glory and praise him forever. D.L. Moody, I I was talking to the elders this week, D.L. Moody, I dug up this quote. He said this, he goes, when I get to heaven, I want to sit with Jesus for a thousand years, just he and I. And then after a thousand years say, by the way, where's Paul? Because the best thing about heaven is Jesus. Paul's great. I, I cannot wait to sit down with Paul. But this is about Jesus, right? And this is so humbling because we are so unworthy of this, this, this standard of love that the Father and the Son have given to us. Man, his whole prayer ends with this desire to have eternal fellowship with us. But when you stop and think about it, when you take a step back from that, you're like, hasn't this been his, his telos, his end goal from the very beginning, right? To, to, to call a redeemed portion of humanity out of the world for his own glory so that we would praise him for all eternity. That has always been the goal. That's what he desires. And it reminds me of this passage from Revelation 5. 
this passage from Revelation 5 that expressly conveys the worthiness of both the Father and the Son to be worshipped forever. I sh- just listen. You, you've probably heard this before, but I want to emphasize some of the words. I am going to close with this, I promise. John says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Can you picture it? This vision is grand. Angels, creatures, elders, and they're all saying with a loud voice, what? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying this. You ready? To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's Jesus. That's the one we worship. Jesus ends this great prayer in John 17 with a note of faith and triumph. He knew in that moment he had accomplished the mission, he, mission he'd be sent for. He knew that the Father's will was that he would keep and he would sanctify his disciples, that everything he prayed for in this prayer in John 17 would come to pass, all of it. So for Jesus, only one thing lay ahead, and that's the cross. But for Jesus, as I said last week, that's his way home. That's his way back to the Father. That's the way back to the glory that he had before the world ever came into being. And that's where we get to go beginning next Sunday. What a Savior, right? Our beautiful King, the King in all his glory. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to to get lost in the humanity of Christ as we read about his life in the Gospels and miss this incredibly grand theme of who Jesus is. And even now we know that God the Son is interceding for us at the throne of grace, that he's pleased by these prayers that come up to the throne of his Father. We forget that he is the Lamb of God who was slain, the Lamb of God who now is worthy of all honor and blessing and glory, that you have raised him up and that his name is above all names, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. May we never forget that, Lord. And may this passage as we finish John 17, may the the conviction of unity that it would seep deeply into our hearts, that whatever we've done in the past that may have caused harm, that we can confess that and move past it, and we can commit ourselves right now to making the positional truth about our unity practical in our lives and in the lives of this church. For your glory, Lord, and so that we might be a witness to this lost world. Help us to do that, Lord. We cannot do it without your spirit. So I pray for us this morning that we can do that. That over the next days, weeks, months, years that we have together, that you will do a transforming work in us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. We worship you this morning. Amen.